0: Welcome to The Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. Today on the show, I've got Stephen Stacks. Stephen, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Jess. So uh, maybe to begin with, can you give people a little bit of of your history of exciting things in the fashion world and success and some things in the furniture world and some lessons learned and what you're doing now?
1: So um, I was in fashion for most of uh, my career and uh, buying and selling products and kind of reflected the way that, um, industry changed. So when I first joined the industry, we were, um, manufacturing business, um, small manufacturing business, supplying small shops. And then, um, as the shops became bigger and more like chains, um, we started to import products and started to sell much, much more stuff. Um, and over time it became a branded business. Um, and ultimately I, I got really tired of it, but it was interesting actually, especially given what's um, happening at the moment across the world with inflation that during the 30 years that I was in the industry, um, we were experiencing deflation. I mean, literally across the whole time, I remember, uh, the, my best selling product when I, uh, joined the industry in the mid, mid nineteen eighties and was more expensive in actually more so. not even allowed for inflation in actual money than my best-selling product when i left the industry um in 2014 so like literally in 30 years actual prices are reduced we, we were importing deflation all of that time and now of course things are very 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 different to that in
0: that space um tell me your 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 top run rate. What did you get to revenue revenue wise? There,
1: uh, we were trading about thirty thirty million pounds, which at the time at the time, so I know thirty million pounds is equivalent to about thirty million dollars today. About uh, the time, it was more or less sixty million dollars. Um, yeah, I was going to say had a substantial. You know, the the the, the greenback is very strong at the moment, and the pound is very weak at the moment. So uh, yeah, it was more it was more impressive then than it would be today.
0: With, with most of our audience we do have a uh, actually surprisingly large amount of international user uh, listeners to the show yeah, Apple will tell us that right. but but uh percentage wise mostly Americans and Canadians so thinking about this in uh, in dollars 60 million what do you feel like you learned um, running a business of that scale that that wasn't effective or wasn't apparent when it was 10 times smaller like when it goes from you know, 6 million a year to 60 million a year. What are the biggest changes? Well, I think the biggest change is that you,
1: you, you your job changes entirely and um, you go from being somebody that does all the jobs to somebody that delegates all the jobs. So you need to understand how to do the jobs, but then you need to also understand how to motivate people and to get them to do those things for you. Um, and honestly... That was never my strong point, and um, I struggled with it. And also, I struggled with um, the ideas around inventory and and the way that cash worked in that business. And ultimately, it was all of those things um, which made me kind of think about getting involved in the financial business um, rather than um, sort of staying in that business. So I I feel I just got a bit too old for it, and I'm tired of it. And what I noticed was that the stuff I liked doing at the beginning, which was like deal making, um, was what I still loved doing at the end. All that other stuff that came along, largely around management of both inventory and also people, it, 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 it I didn't like it. Oh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't like. It. I was, I was very good at it, and therefore I didn't like it, or, or whichever way you want, whichever way around you want to sort of say that. And as a consequence, yeah, I kind of, I, I don't know, I was, I was, I was kind of asleep, I guess, um, a lot of the time until a deal came along or something went wrong. I thought, wow. This great. I'm energized now. I'll get out and do some stuff. Um, and then the, the, did the stuff uh, bought something, sold something, did a deal, kind of went back to sleep again and waited for like the next thing to come along. And then I thought, well, maybe I could just do that, just do that stuff that really, really excites me and don't do all that other stuff. So I'd have to say that overall, I'm not cut out for running a larger, um,
0: business and I quite like
1: just offering services and doing what I want to do when I want to do it.
0: Yeah. Um, so, uh, before your, your success, you've got now in, in lending space, uh, you took a time in furniture. Do you want to talk about some of the lessons there?
1: Yeah, that was a huge lesson. Um. So we had a, uh, furnishing business. We sold, we selling direct to consumer using newspaper advertising, online advertising, and, um, basically we had, I mean, you're familiar with Brexit, right? Yeah. So Brexit, uh, impacted our business and, and not when we actually did it, which is the vote actually, which I think was in, um, uh, June, 2016. Um, the, the two things happened. The first thing that happened was, again, we had a devaluation of the pound and given that the dollar is like the international currency of exchange, uh, that meant that effectively we had like a 20% increase in our, um, cost of goods sold. So we had to buy, it was much more expensive and secondly, and at the same time, um, our cost of acquisition of customers also went up largely because people were very uncertain about the future and were deferring the purchase of like larger goods. So on the one hand, so we went, we went from a business where we were able to acquire customers profitably, we had the budget to do that. So our sort of cash was recycling all the time. We were buying customers, buying product, selling it, um, buying more customers, selling And then suddenly it was like, oh, hang on a minute. Suddenly our, uh, cost of acquiring those customers is not the same as the margin we were making and it started to hit tail off, like really badly. Uh, like 20% increase in cost, 20%, uh, increase in acquisition costs. And the margin just wasn't there. So the, 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 business really started to tank and six months later, um, I chucked it in, it just, just couldn't get through and that was a huge, um, huge learning for me.
0: Uh, and, and so, tell us about what that led you to, and what you're doing now.
1: Well, I kind of, I kind of went networking, right? So, um, I, I'm guessing the same with you. But certainly in London, there are massive amount of networking opportunities. Like for breakfast, lunch, dinner, you, know, you can go business networking all the time, and that's what I did. I just went out uh, meeting people, uh, largely other advisory businesses trying to work out where the opportunity might be, where the gap was. What I saw was that there were, there were lots of accountants. There were lots of lawyers. There were lots of, um, business coaches, but what, 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 what there wasn't was, um, people applying of entrepreneurial experience to, uh, deal making, especially around fundraising, um. So what I found was, well, I, I would speak to businesses and they'd have a very fixed idea in their head about, yeah, I want to scale this business and therefore I need to raise this money. I want to sell some shares in my business to do that. And then you'd ask the various questions around, um, I don't know, uh, grants, um, tax credits, pricing, debt, uh, especially venture debt, uh, other forms of debt. Yeah, before you get to equity, because, you know, they they kind of didn't realize that um, ultimately equity needs to be repaid and it's really, really expensive when you do that. Um, It's almost like kind of like considering it's like free money, I'll bring somebody on and without thinking about why could that person want to invest in you or what's in it for them? Um, So, you know, advising around that and helping businesses to achieve that became um it seemed like a passion of mine i don't think i was bad i don't think i was that well advised myself when i was running businesses so i thought well, yeah with my experience now i, t- I feel like I could, I could do that and i and having done all this some sort of networking out in the field i could see nobody else was, or not many other people really doing that or doing that well so i started doing that and then i wrote a couple of books um around around that and i haven't looked back it has been um it's been a phenomenal journey um the last 6 years
0: well, and and can you tell us a little bit about Reboot and the investors' handbook?
1: Yeah, so um, I wrote two books. The first one's for Reboot Your Business, which I wrote in twenty eighteen. And basically it's a guide to um, how h- how you need to maybe rethink how you run a business today relative to previously, because of course, change is happening much more quickly all the time. It's always accelerating never more quickly than now, right? I mean, it's just literally from week to week, it's very difficult to plan how, how, how you're going to be running your business, um, and how you're going to fund your business and then how to make incremental improvements in your business. There's about three sections in in that book. Um, so I, I, I wrote that and then, um, about two years later, I wrote another book called the intelligent investors handbook, which kind of dealt with um the issues that um investors in small medium businesses have in basically trying to pick a successful strategy because most people lose money to doing that and i was trying to um help to, to try and help people to get more confident and to understand how that might work um and yeah that must be pretty interesting
0: so uh, l- let's talk about these for a minute. So reboot. What's one of your favorite stories that you tell in that book? Do you have any on the top of your head?
1: I mean, yeah, just around change, right? So um, I remember. Um, I remember. I remember visiting um, uh, Mission Control in Houston, Texas. Actually, uh, when I was on holiday, um, 2016, I think it was, and I walked into. Um intermission, like the famous mission control, where where, where they could sort of had the moon landings and you've got all these desks there, and it looks very much like the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, which of course was filmed at the same time. So you've got these like, you know, computer screens, there's no keyboards, no mice, just buttons like that. Um and you think, wow, it's just like it's basic, right? It's basic, but they got guys up into space to doing this stuff. And then when you walk away from the building. There are three enormous buildings surrounding this building and each of those housed mainframe computers, but they are in not like cabinets, cavernous, huge buildings. And then the guy said to me, he goes, yeah, he said that this is what this work took me, but the computing power of that whole complex was less than is in a modern day BMW, like a modern day sort of sedan car. And, you know, then you think about that, you think, wow, that it's just amazing. You know, I, on my desktop, I've probably got like as much power as all of that. And, you know, y- y- you need to make the rates. As I say, it's about the rate of change. You know, it's, it was just striking.
0: Yeah, especially when we think about, you know, history is our primary source of learning. Right. And and we don't always take the right lessons from history. Sometimes we take the lesson as this is how you do it. Mm-hmm where maybe the lesson is here's how they adapted last time. And it's not about what they adapted to. Maybe it's the principles of adaptation, not the conclusion or something. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I I agree with
1: you. Things are changing all the time. Actually, rather embarrassingly in the first edition of the book, because we reprinted it post COVID where we kind of changed a lot because obviously during the pandemic, everything changed again. And businesses had to operate in an entirely new way that I and mean, in fact the way that we're speaking now right jess i mean this is kind of almost um came about because of the pandemic this acceleration in technology around um you know the, the, the talking on video um but in that first version my kind of um mentor was a guy called um philip green who's i i don't know if you've heard of him actually he was a uh he was a really successful business guru he was a to be a billionaire in the in the u k through fashion and i used to deal with him i used to know him and um i really admired him but literally in the last three or four years his reputation has been entirely trashed. He did a number of things which um um which are which 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 are kind of what basically resulted in, in his businesses were folding. He moved to, he was avoiding tax. So almost one of the other things was I had to remove a lot of um, references to this guy who I thought was amazing. And there was actually not, not so amazing. Maybe I'd sort of be aiming in a slightly different direction here. So yeah, my, my whole perception changed and continues to change actually a lot. And you just need to be open to all this stuff.
0: And it makes me think about the Warren Buffett quote about it takes 20 years to build a reputation in five minutes to lose it yeah. or one decision to lose it. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um,
0: so, so tell us about, uh, kind of what those lessons have led you to and, and, uh, kind of your, your passion these days around helping entrepreneurs access debt financing.
1: Yeah. Uh, like I said to you previously, uh, I find that, um, mm. Entrepreneurs, they they they're kind of running their business. They're in their silo, they're in their lane, and they they come to um, an issue where the answer is more cash. And in business, often that's the answer, right? And often the uh, the symptom of something going wrong is no cash. You know, it's kind of like it's it's the acid test of business, right? The reason why businesses fail, no cash, and the reason, and when they succeed, then they throw off loss of cash. Um. So it often, you know, they, they, they get into that and they think, okay, more cash need investors or, or need, need this or, or need something. I, mean, I I can think of a really good example, actually, of a business that was uh, in the snack food industry in London, yeah, and um, they had, uh, they, they were supplying a very large chain of sandwich stores with um, snacks, and also they had their own brand. And they had a, a 30,000 square foot unit that was working 24 seven. And the business was losing money. It was kind of, it had a negative net margin of around about five to 6%. And so they came to me and they said, okay, we, we want to, we, we need investment. We're going to expand our operation in order to become more profitable. And then when we analysed it, we said, yeah, actually. Uh, yes, you don't really want to take on more debt or more activity. What you really need to do is uh, just increase your prices by 10%. Because what you'll do is then you'll scare off this very low margin, huge customer that you're actually selling at a loss. And hopefully you'll attract in a lot of newer customers. But, you know, just to kind of build on this um, strategy of serving this very low margin client is, is not a good way forward. And, So in the end, actually, we we got paid nothing for that um, and they went off and did whatever they did. But, you know, as a a point of principle, I don't, you know, I I won't do what people think is the right thing. I'll do what I think is the right thing. And if if I, if that, if that means we don't get the business, then so be it, because I think what, what goes around comes around.
0: Well, tell us, uh, tell us a success story of one of your clients.
1: We were dealing. I met a guy who was in the computer games industry. Um, he had a in fact, he he pre initially he had a, a load of computer game shops. So when, when computer games were sold in boxes, and um, inevitably that went bust and he he was bankrupt and he was in a really really bad way. And then he started a new business, which was um, uh, when he was licensing, um, computer games he was licensing uh ip from pixar and disney and in, in the states and making that kids computer games and um that wasn't going very well either because it was it's, it's enormously expensive to develop games right even if you don't own the ip um you know, you, you have to take quite a large stab at um like any kind of production right and you know the computer games industry now is bigger than every other media put together is a, a lot of, a lot of stake there. And then when I met him, he was, um, he had major issues. I literally on the, on the edge of insolvency. So we managed to raise a million pound loan for him. And in addition to that, uh, there was a renegotiation with his investor where he got diluted from 50% to 20%. Anyway, move on two years. Um, the business got bought by private equity for 180 million and is now, um, on the way to becoming a unicorn, actually, it's going to be, um, they're going to IPO it and it'll have a billion pound valuation. Uh, this guy has gone from literally like nothing to a hundred million, maybe more. Um, it's, that has been amazing. an amazing journey.
0: Oh, it's incredible. So l- let's let's dive into that story a little bit. Uh it is fascinating to me. Um we we just got a client this morning. It's one of the largest tech companies in the world everybody would recognize. And uh I was just talking to my head of operations who also happens to be my brother who has uh run businesses with me kind of since 2004. And uh and I, I was just commenting about like how How much one day can change things in business, yeah. you know, like like it you know compared to the job world or getting an education or these things that take so much time, like taking the right steps in the entrepreneurial world can have such drastic effects, right yeah. um yes. so you know, as you're talking about this guy who's like almost insolvent, you know, right on the edge i can just I can just feel like the gut churning. Um, of like times when, you know, the the, I don't know, the roller coaster of my uh, personal network, you know, when I've had those lows, and you're just like, it just feels like the walls are caving in on you, and you just, you know, just, it's it's rough, right? It is. And uh, in,
1: I mean, just on, on that point, I've, I've recently started. I've, I've licensed a um, uh, something. For, it's from it's, it exists in Mexico, but it exists in 300 cities around the world. So can i
0: swear on here uh yeah but we'll probably beep it out
1: so okay. so it's it's cool f- up nights right and um it exists in 300 cities around the world we had did the first one in london last night and we got four business people to tell stories and there are three elements to their story the first element is um how they were before the second element is what the f-up was um and how that felt like like a um, and then the third is what they learn from it. Right. And it's seven or eight minutes and there's a Q and A from the audience. And the thing is, right. As business people, we, we, we have, we'll have an elevator pitch. Right. And, um, and it's largely, it's aspirational and it's kind of, yeah, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And it's, it's great. And it's fantastic. Um, but when you get to know somebody quite well, then you dig down and failure's always below the surface, um. I think it was Winston Churchill that said that, um, the definition of success is the ability to move from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. And I think in business, right? That's right. You've got to keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. And in the end, you keep coming back enough. You'll well, hopefully you'll succeed. Right. Anyway, one of the, the, the best storyteller last night, he's like a British Jordan Belfort, actually It's very, very similar to the whole Wolf of wall street thing. This guy, he joined the city of London in the 1980s uh, where we had some big bangers around deregulation. He ultimately was making five million pounds a year. He had private jets, um, boats, several houses around the world. He had a football club and he was trading in derivatives and he started to take bigger and bigger bets and in the end, he was like, fought um, forty million pounds um, adrift from where he said he was, and he reported himself to um, the financial authorities here, and wound up with a fourteen-year prison sentence, divorced, lost everything, literally everything, and now he's kind of like, um, I know him, and uh, he's coming back, and 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 he just spoke in. It it was a terrible thing that happened, and and he admits he, he deserved to go to prison. Right? It was like it wasn't. You know, he's, he's not running from. He's not blaming anyone. It's entirely his fault. But he made a series of poor decisions, and um, he he wrecked that part of his life. You know, it's and 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 his family's life too. So yeah, on the one hand, these stories can be a positive pivot, and on the other hand. They can also be really, really negative.
0: I, I completely agree. Uh, and yet there's still the, the learning opportunity in all of them. You know, I got a, uh, I'm gotta on the board of directors of this entrepreneurship board at Utah State University here. And uh, the guy at our meeting this week was a guy who's been on the show a number of years ago. His name is Dave DeRocher. He runs this program in Utah called The Other Side Academy. And uh, it's where they take ex-convicts and drug addicts They don't take any government money and they basically teach them responsibility by living together and running businesses together. And so they have a Christmas tree, Christmas tree sales business. They've got a moving company, stuff like this. And he's just an inspirational guy to me of this idea of like, your past doesn't have to determine your future because I think I'm going to misquote this, but between like, I think it was like between age 16 and like 35, He had spent a total of like 16 months out of prison because he'd done like eight years out for eight months, 10 years out for eight months, you know? And so he's basically going in for his last time. He's in California, three strikes rule. Like he's in for life. And this judge says, I'll give you a shot. If you go to Delancey street in San Francisco and you can manage to not get kicked out for two years, you don't have to go to prison at all. And that's basically like the same program that he's running now. This other side academy is, is almost like a franchise version of it, you know. And it's just shocking to hear like such terrible resumes, <laughs> right? Of people that, that uh, maybe society would say are irredeemable. And, and so often our habits our habits, we are prisoners to our habits and people don't escape their thought choices. And and I guess his academy specifically is so interesting to me because over this multi year program of living together, like there's no counselors, there's no therapists, there's no government money, there's no government people. It's just all people like you trying to overcome their poor decision making programs. And and uh I don't know, it, it just like reinforces this idea of like, do you know Victor Frankl, the guy who uh wrote Man Search for Meaning? in the prison camps i love this quote of his of like and i'm going to totally misquote it That like at any moment we choose who we're going to yeah. be and that we can choose to be somebody new you know you're before we started the episode you were talking about biking <laughs> listening to david goggins and decided to go for a 215 mile bike yeah. ride have you ever you you hadn't ridden that distance before, no right?
1: i, I rode that so a few weeks ago i did a charity ride to paris which was 215 miles and then, um, my wife went away, uh, last weekend and it was sunny and there was a train strike. So I thought, wow, this is oh, the, my stars are aligned here because I think I, I've got a free pass and it, I can't easily give up because I can't get back on a train. So I'm going to go and the weather's nice. So I'm going to go around and make this whole route on Strava around the Southeast of England and I set off with a big bag of calories because um, it was 10,000 calories, right? So you'd try and adjust Actually, it's, it, I, that. That's what I really struggled with. I managed to get four and a half thousand, maybe, but I'd certainly 10,000 made me feel sick. Um, anyway, so I, I, go, I go off around um, South round you see, I see a beautiful dawn. I get to about 95 miles I have my lunch, and then I come back around. I come to Cambridge um, where we have a university here. And it was 7 30 in the evening, and that's when my problems started. Uh, my problems were like threefold. Firstly, um, my um, Wahoo computer that had my map on it, uh, the battery packed up. So I kind of, um, it was difficult to navigate. Secondly, it was dark. Thirdly, it was cold, got down to bus, um, five or six degrees centigrade. I'm not sure what has in Fahrenheit. Um, and you can't drive bicycle like on the freeway you have to go down country roads so country roads a they don't have any lighting and b they don't really have any signage or if they do have signage to the next village you haven't actually heard of but it's not to where you're actually going so i'm charging down these roads and in, the, in the middle of the night and i'm thinking and i'm freezing cold when i'm, when I'm not peddling i'm cold i think i know i haven't thought this through properly because if i get a mechanical failure here if i kind of like get a puncture or i get a I have to stop I get off my bike. Firstly, I can't see to fix anything. Secondly, I kind of don't even know where I am. And thirdly, actually, I'll be shaking too much because of, because of the cold. And I thought, I really haven't thought this through. I hadn't, I, d- I hadn't thought through the implications of that. I knew I'd get back late. But I, I just, I don't know. I don't know what it was, actually, that sort of stopped me planning. But it was like, it wasn't good. Anyway, in the end, I did get back about 1 a.m. And I got home and I just thought, wow, I can't believe I did that, but I can't believe I took that risk either. But anyway, I did. And I felt really good about it in the end. Won't do it again. So, so there you go.
0: <laughs> um, so uh, I want to go back to this story, though. Uh, this client of yours, like the walls are caving in. He's almost insolvent. Mm-hmm. And within two years, he sells the business for $180 mm-hmm. million. Um, What do you feel like were some key decisions that that he made right there and and that maybe you helped advise him with he well the the biggest key
1: decision was that he was in um an industry which allowed that you know if he was in um almost any other industry in far one or two industries then he would have struggled to achieve that 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 results you know at the moment I'm seeing, I don't know, computer games, EV, electric vehicles. You know, there's a few things where you know, the, the the valuations and the growth opportunity is enormous. So I think that if you want to make money quickly, the first thing is I think you need to be in the right industry. Um, and then he had a a really interesting business model which allowed him to de-risk his development. Because he was licensing, um, IP that he knew was successful already. Um, his hit rate was far greater than it would have been if he was just creating stuff, because there are so many kids in bedrooms all around the world, creating computer games and you know, how many of them become the next weekend or the next, you know, the, 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 next big blockbuster, you know, you just hardly any, right? The hit rate is tiny. But if you're taking something that's already a very successful film franchise, well, you've got a massively bigger chance, right, of, of making that work. Even if you don't own the the actual IB yourself, you you're just renting it as you are with a license deal. And then he because they were well known, he was able to offset a lot of his risk by pre-selling that because um a lot of the distributors would say, Fine, yeah, that's um that's frozen or that's um you know, whatever the the other name of the, um, the, the film franchise is. Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll give you an advance on that. So, you know, a lot of his development costs were, um, de-risked because, because of all of that and the, and the sale. So yeah, he would, he, he was in a safe niche in a vast, vastly profitable industry. And then he surrounded himself with a really good team. Um, uh, which is of, of people very close to him that are very very competent in that business. So I think it was it was those three factors which um, got him to where to, to be able to where he is
0: now. That's great. Well, uh, why don't you tell us another client success story? So I had a client recently, um, four
1: young guys um, who. Uh, were friendly at school and then at um uh, a university and uh, and they did a variety of different things but not what they wound up ultimately in and the one of the guys his parents had um like a small distribution business near to uh, london airports D- distributing what just boxes boxes of stuff right so um uh, like freight forwarding, you know, um, okay. and they, they wanted to retire, uh, him and his friends, they were kind of quite interested in clothing and fashion. And they looked at the way that, um, fashion distribution, uh, was happening. And they saw something which, um, had been kind of missed by the rest of the industry. And that is that, um, that the distribution part of the business previously was, was the kind of, it it was, it's it's what, it's what under the hood, right? It was just the stuff that nobody really wants to see, but the industry changed, um, insofar as, um, the people who are quite successful in the industry now are not, they don't come from the industry. They actually come from the world of Instagram and their influences, right? So like Kardashian, for example, is, is is a good example. You know, she, she she didn't go to fashion college, but she runs a, a highly successful series of brands because she's able to um, to drive customers to her stuff really cheaply because she is in herself a huge brand. So, they that this is kind of happening all over, and they saw that um, you know there were kids who were uh, had big followings on Instagram and other social media platforms, and they would then try and productize this by creating, um, I don't know, putting their brand on a, on a, on a t-shirt or sweat or something like that, or baseball cap to do a limited, um, uh, release. And then they get orders They, they, they you know, they have a hundred, they sell a hundred like immediately. Like you say it was not like normal fashion. Um, And then they need something to to distribute it. So that, so they started to do that because they knew some of these people. And then they developed a a new facility. It was super clean. Didn't look like normal facilities. Uh, It's got, uh, it's carbon neutral. It's got a load of um, uh, solar panels on the roof Um, because a lot of these brands are sustainable. So they, so they, so they like that particular idea and they st- and they invited the influencers into um, into the facility, they put f- f- photographic f- uh, facilities in there, and soon they become absolutely oversubscribed because it's the only facility which kind of deals with the market as it is today and not the market as it was historically. And then I went in there a year ago because they wanted to expand. They, they had a 30,000 square foot warehouse uh, near near Teethro Airport, which they um not not the original one from the parents was about four thousand foot. It was tiny, and now uh, when I went in there, we went to raise some money um, in order to open up three hundred thousand square feet of pick face, like huge, like ten times bigger than what what they had previously. Uh, and these guys, yeah, interestingly, so they they wanted to do an equity sale, um, sell shares. And, um, to, uh, to, 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 expand the business. But actually when I looked at the cash flows of this business, um, and the fact that it looked a bit like a sausage machine and they were heavily oversubscribed, it looked pretty obvious to me that the more business you put in at one end and you remove the constraint of size that the business will continue to expand. So we actually found a venture debt provider rather than a, a venture capital provider. Who have uh loaned them the money over a five-year period, um, first six months um interest only, and then paying the rest of the capital back over the that balance of fifty-four months. So that at the end of this period, they'll own the whole business. Um, still, there'll no other shareholder in the business and they can do with it what they want. where previously, had they gone with their plan, they would have still had the facility, but they would have had to sell the business and the um that they would have found all sorts of uh, issues around management of the business and the general direction of strategy in the business guided by the equity investor, which they don't have now. So yeah, that, these guys have been massively successful. They rethought the business and, you know, we, we were really glad to help them fund it also in, in an innovative way. You know, way. I know
0: we're kind of winding down here. Maybe a final question for me is when you think about the risks of over leverage, how do you, how does your brain work? How do you think about, um, you know, enough leverage to get done what you need to get done without risking your whole future?
1: I, I'm I'm really uncertain on the whole area of leverage currently. I'm um, I'm specifically uncertain because, um, we, we, you know, we obviously had the banking crisis in 2008 where all the banks were over leveraged and, um, you know, that they were warned to, and then Lehman brothers went bust. Of course, you know, this whole thing. So we literally just in the last week or so, we've got a new government here in the UK and, um, they decided to cut taxes like Reaganomics, actually very much like Reagan cut tax in order to drive growth. But, um. The markets didn't like it because they thought, well, oh, hang on a minute, this, this looks like a sort of like a banana republic. This, this is all, it's just debt, more debt. They, they're just overleveraging over the country here. And what we saw was that um, uh, there was a dip uh, in the value of the pound, which which we discussed. And um, the um, interest rates that the government are paying in um, gilts in uh, bonds that has gone up a lot. And And, and what really surprised me is that um a lot of the pension funds were leveraged with derivatives and i had no idea that was the case i would have thought pension funds were playing a safe game where they were not leveraged so i'm kind of looking yeah the country's leveraged but the pension funds well what's even going on here you know that that was like um I think that was a failure in regulation, actually. And I think that right now, I, I think it's not a time to be leveraged. I think that, um, you know, when 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 you're in a beginning of a downturn, and that's what I think we are currently, I think you need to be unleveraging, as un, unwinding your positions as quickly as you possibly can.
0: I would certainly agree with that, how we're approaching commercial real estate at our fund. You know, we're doing these, we're in the middle right now of building these, uh, small like action sports resorts for mm-hmm. families who are like really into outdoor stuff near like ski hills and the mountains and lakes and things like this right national parks and um we have just pursued alternative building materials and how can we just build this thing at half price instead of how much can we borrow to do it and like we're installing our new ones debt free for exactly that reason of you know there's Real estate, for instance, can be one of the safest businesses out there unless you're over leveraged. I mean, it's the number one problem with real estate is too much debt, you know, or, or your model requires things to keep going the way that they're going and things never keep going the way they're going. They either go up or they go down, yeah. you know, and you're fine in one of those scenarios and you might lose everything in the other scenario, right? Yeah. So we've, interestingly enough, we actually acquired a
1: property management business in August two, two months ago. Um, and one of the reasons for that is to try it is to, is, it, is to manage properties or, or large amounts of property in, in the British Midlands that may well be over leveraged because at the point where, uh, people get into trouble as the manager of the, of the property, we're probably the first person they're gonna come to in order to try and execute some kind of deal. And uh, we're already starting to see deals, uh, offered to us, you know, through, through the portfolio of properties of magic, and we're expanding the properties and also, um, expanding our sort of like our, our deal flow through doing that. But largely I'm not doing deals. stamp. I'm interested in taking, um, option positions on, on the property, just in case the market really dives, because I honestly, in the UK here, I wouldn't be surprised to see, um. Uh, property valuations dropping by 30% over the next two years.
0: Do you know that uh, American billionaire Sam Zell? No. Or, do you know that name? No. Uh, I, I believe his parents were Russian immigrants. South Africa, uh, doesn't it? Yeah, and and came over with nothing and kind of pulled themselves up by the root staff and built a future for themselves. But he has really done well a number of times of kind of seeing the impending pain and when people stay optimistic too long, that's when they get caught, you know, they don't unwind the positions like you're talking about and, and just, uh, you know, gets ready for those people who get in the tough spot, uh, who, who fail to learn from history, right? Well, I mean, we've just seen
1: the mother of all bubbles, haven't we? In the last, um, few years with the whole Reddit sort of, sort of share, um, uh, tippings with cryptocurrencies with property yeah it's so many different areas um and it, it it seems almost like inevitable that you know this is not going to continue to sustain especially as interest rates now are ramping up and there's a real cost to money which there hasn't been for like 10 years money's been kind of free now there's a yeah, you know, there's a massive cost to that so it's kind of it just seems inevitable to me that this is going to happen so, um, yeah, let, let's, um, you know, let's stand back and watch and just see what does happen over the next couple of years.
0: Well, um, listen, if people want to connect with you online or more, learn more about what you're doing, where's the best places for them to do that? So
1: uh, they can have a look at my LinkedIn profile, Stephen Sachs, S-A-C-K-S, and also they can uh, check out the FundingNav website. That's FundingNav, like SatNav.com. Okay, great. Well,
0: thanks again for making time for this.
1: Jess, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Okay, weiter.